I have given them the glory that you gave me. John 17, around 23, 24. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as you and I are one, you and them, uh, them and you, me, you know that, so that the world may know that you sent me. All of a sudden, evangelism started to orbit around this idea of glory being given to us. And I confess that when that struck me, I realized I didn't have a clue how to look for that glory. I had some phrases, you know, search the gold out in different people and do stuff like that. But I didn't really know. So I began pursuing that with you guys. We began pursuing it at our Tuesday study and so on. And we ran into a couple other issues. We ran into the idea of hope associated with glory because Christ in you is the hope of glory. So what is hope? And we found, a lot of us found, that uh, in spite of maybe knowing the word definition of hope, that it was a firm kind of thing and it was associated with faith, that, that faith is the uh, evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen, uh, we basically had kind of a wish definition for hope. And we realized we needed to go deeper. Then we, we dug in a little bit deeper about that. And on two fronts, we learned something that I'm going to follow up on tonight. Front number one was that God is the God of hope. God is the God of hope. It's in Romans 15, 13. Therefore, hope is not... And here's another thought that just lodged itself in my spirit and in my mind, but that isn't really true. And it's, it's the opposite. If God is the God of hope and he gives us the ability to abound in hope by the work of the Holy Spirit in our joy and peace and believing, like it says in Romans 15, 13, then hope is not a, a, a religious or a duty that I have to steward or that you have to steward. Hope is a gift. Now, a gift brings stewardship with it, but it's given to you. And when you have it, then you have something to do with it. But he's the one from whom it originates. Just like we love because he first loved us. Or just like Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So it's not our responsibility to engineer peace in our life by lining all the ducks in a row up or by imagining them being in a line. Jesus really gave us peace, his peace, not like the world gives. See what I'm saying? So hope is the same way. It's bigger than we thought. The hope of glory is more than we thought. And then the second thing we learned that was a revolution in my thinking was uh, when we looked at the Young's Literal Translation and we looked at uh, Robert Alter's uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible Translation, uh, his life work as a Hebrew linguist, Isaiah 6.3 says that, in, in most translations, it says that the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. But the actual translation, and I, I've got a third source now to prove that to you tonight, and I'm happy for it, and I'm pleased that it's that way. But the actual translation, this is not me just making it up, it's really true. The actual translation is the fullness of the earth is the glory of the Lord. So there's something that we need to learn. We need to be able to see the fullness around us of the cosmos, of the earth, of the people in the earth. And we're going to examine that a little bit more tonight. We need to look at what fullness is. And Sterling asked the question last Saturday or last Friday, and Ronnie asked it again on Tuesday, and I didn't have an answer really for either of them, but I promised I'd get it. And so 
I don't know if I'll have it tonight. I'll leave that for you to determine, but we're sure going to wade through the weeds to try to figure it out tonight. But the fullness of the earth is the glory of the Lord. And therefore, in Habakkuk's prophecy and promise, that in the last days, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, you and I are in a time when our ability to see the fullness of the earth and the people that is the glory of God, we're positioned to begin to see around us the things and the people differently. So, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Okay? So, what are we looking at when we look at fullness? Here's the scripture. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. This is a New American Standard, which is what I usually use as kind of my home base. And I appreciate the New American Standard for the most part. I was disappointed in it in this, but I got to confess, I was looking at it in this little Bible, which is not a study Bible. Therefore, it doesn't have the notes in it. I was, I did some further looking and I noticed that there was a one in front of the phrase, whole earth is full of his glory. Now, yeah, it's a footnote. Or actually, in the New American Standard Study versions, when you have a one like that in front of it, or a number in a sentence, you could, it could have a two technically, but usually it's just one because it's one in a sentence. It, it, they, they let you know the literal rendering is. And if you'll dig in a little bit and just pay attention to those, it helps a lot. Uh, like, for instance, there's a passage of Scripture where in John chapter 15, around 3 or 4, uh, Jesus uh, says that uh, any branch that doesn't bear fruit, a lot of translations say my father cuts off. That is a completely erroneous translation. There's nothing about cut off in the Greek. Uh, what it, the word is aero, aero, which is where we get the word aeroplane or aeronautics, and it means lift up. In other words, uh, the, the aeronautic shape of a wing creates lift. That's where it comes from. That's, it, it, it's a Greek, Greek term. And so uh, the New American Standard has a one there, and it says literally lift. So if you pay attention, it's good. So I was thrilled, and take back all the mean things I thought and said about the New American Standard translators, because it has here one, and then the phrase in the footnote is fullness of the whole earth is his glory. So instead of the way they translated it on the surface, uh, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The footnote reveals the literal rendering of the Hebrew words. So I was pretty excited about that. And then uh, the way I, I, I got to it is I mentioned Robert uh, Alter, and I looked at it in the Young's literal translation, and it says, and this one hath called to that, and hath said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The fullness of all the earth is his glory. So, literally, the New American Standard acknowledged that. Why they chose not to put it as the primary translation, I can understand, because of the theology that is coming out of the Reformed world. But, nevertheless, it's just a little another layer that I hope encourages you that that is the accurate translation. So, the reason we're studying fullness, and the reason that Sterling and Ronnie's question, is, and perhaps yours, about what is the fullness of, of the whole earth, is important, is because it really is does say this. It really is right here. It really is the glory of the Lord is the fullness of the earth. Okay? Make sense? All right. So what is the fullness of the earth? Well, we have an idea of what the earth is. 
It's the globe, and it's the creation that's on the globe, and it is the people that are populating the, the society of that globe. Okay? So we're going to dig into the word fullness, and this is where we get into the weeds. Anybody falls asleep, you'll be totally forgiven. It's a little warm, and I'm going to get boring. All right, the word is mellow. That's the Hebrew word, mellow. Old Testament 4393. It's a masculine noun referring to what fills or makes full or fullness or abundance. It's used in those forms. It depicts in general what fills something up or fills it out. And it is a fullness of hand or a handful. And so uh, that's why sometimes it'll be fullness, sometimes it'll be filled up, and so on and so forth. Um, Mellow is, uh, 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 here's some examples. So an omer full is a combined word using mellow, and an omer is a measure, and it had to do with how much manna was filled up and put in the ark as a remembrance. So uh, the instructions to Moses was fill the whole omer container, okay, like a gallon of whatever the measure is. Um, This little passage in 2 Kings is about, if you remember, when they made the stew, and they went out and they gathered a whole bunch of gourds and thought, oh, great, we found some veggies for the stew. And it didn't know what they were, and it turned out they were poison. And then uh, uh, the prophet had to come in and heal the poison out of the stew. But it said a skirt full. So if you can envision holding out your skirt, and because of the crowd they were cooking for, they filled that to a heaping pile. And that was a skirt full of a, a skirt mellow. Make sense? So it means... All, all a thing will hold. All a thing will hold. And then this other word that has the prefix in front of umelo uh, speaks about the seas and the islands and, and, and their fullness. And it, it, it goes the sea and everything that's in it and the islands and everything that are on it. So it's including everything. Uh, and, and there's a lot of parallelisms. We'll look at a few in a minute. And then this last one is super interesting. This is in 1 Samuel 28.20. And it, it is when Samuel... Um, it's when Samuel went to the medium and conjured up, uh, when Saul, I mean, went to the medium and conjured up Samuel. Okay? And, uh, and, and what happened when that happened is uh, that was wrong to do in the first place. And then uh, Samuel was Samuel. And he came up and said, why have you summoned me? And uh, he said, if you had done what God asked he wouldn't have torn the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor, David. And, and it was so aggressive that Saul literally fell on his face with his arms out. Just fell on his face. And Melo is used to describe the entire... So he didn't bow at the waist. He didn't drop to his knees. He took his entire height and he laid it out. And it's the whole height of his body, his frame. Okay, So all it means is there wasn't anything left of Samuel that wasn't laid out. Fullness, in that sense, is everything the skirt could carry, everything an omer could carry, every inch of height and breadth that, Samuel, that Saul had, he laid out in agony over the kingdom being torn from him. Does that make sense? So okay, now we're going to look at a. This is a. Uh, this is a uh, simpler analysis. It has to do with fullness or what fills. 
So fullness, a handful, a mass. Sometimes it's used with uh, people or groups of people. So there was one instance where it said uh, the Lord was going to send a fullness of shepherds. And what it meant is that all the shepherds in the land were being gathered together to go to the flocks. Uh, Another is the entire content of something. All the words. Uh, This is attached to prophecy sometimes when it says every bit of it, every jot and tittle, every little thing in the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Nothing is to be left out. And then uh, when it has to do linearly or with time, full time, full line, all that kind of stuff. All right, now, this is the way it's used in tenses. And I don't fully understand much about and this is my last uh, in the weed slide. These, the qual, the nifal, the pale, th- these are the tenses you find Hebrew words in. And so our word, mali uh, mali here, is the root of all those words. And so the qual means to be full. And so it speaks of fullness or abundance, to be full, to be accomplished, to be ended. That would have to do when a task is fulfilled, to be accomplished, or when a prophecy is fulfilled, to be ended, or whatever, or a season or a time. Uh, a second definition under the qual is to consecrate or fill. So, but just look at the idea. So to be fill, uh, to be full, and then the nifal is to be filled, or to be armed, or to be satisfied, to be accomplished, so it, it just depends on how you're using the sentence. In other words, uh, the, the race was full would mean that it had as many participants in it as it could have. The race was fulfilled would mean that it was over. It's a different tense, but it still carries the idea that there's nothing left over or nothing left out. Uh, Peel is to fill or to satisfy or to fulfill or accomplish or complete. The poal is to be filled. It's a future tense. This will be full. And uh, the hip fall is to mask themselves against. That has to do with groups of people and being gathered uh, in, in time. All right. So I have just exhausted my ability to speak about the Hebrew. But what I wanted you to see that for is that there's no instance up there where there's stuff left out. This word is used when it's everything. It's used when it's everything, whether it relates to time or space or content or whatever. All right, so here is uh, the majority. There's like five or six out of Psalms. I think I've got four of them on here. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So you'll notice all it contains has one of those New American Standard footnotes in front of it, and it says its fullness. And I was happy to find, again, and to commend you to, the fact that the New American Standard publishers, when they publish it as a study Bible, always have this footnote in there, that it's the fullness. So in the Young's, they translate it as its fullness. To Jehovah is the earth and its fullness, the world and the inhabitants in it. And so you can see in both that it carries the idea that it's not just the world structure, but it's also the people in the world. And this is important because I think if we're going to take our clue from the Scripture about what fullness means, I think we're going to find it includes both the created aspect and the people living in that created aspect. And I think that's going to be pretty important to us. Uh, Psalms 50, uh, 12 reads this way. If I, and if you go back up to verse 7, it's talking about God, your God. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains, or the footnote there, its fullness, uh, 
Young's literal says, if I'm hungry, I will not tell, I will not to thee, for mine is the world and its fullness. And Young's literal spells fullness with only one L. I thought about correcting him because I was anal, but I just decided not to. Because <laughs> he can spell it that way if he wants, I'm sure. Uh, Psalms 89.11. The heavens are yours, Lord. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains you have founded. So again, there's, there's not an exemption. There's not a specificity. It's, it's pointing to everything. And you can even see the parallels. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world is yours. And all it contains. Thine are the heavens. The earth also is thine. The habitable world and its fullness. Thou hast founded them. Now, do, do we think that there's anything that the Lord hasn't founded? No. So it includes everything, right? And then here, I think, our last one. Uh, let the sea roar, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So do you see the parallelism? Let the sea roar and everything that's in it, and the world and all who live in it. Roar doth the sea in its fullness, the world and the inhabitants in it. All right. So, do you think that the fullness of the Lord is the created aspect and everyone and everything. I, I don't see how to draw a different conclusion. So I don't think there's any hidden narrowness to it. But we're going to have to ask a second question. This is a good one. Ronnie brought this up on Tuesday night. What about the stuff in the world that's fallen? What about the stuff that's twisted? It's broken. It's corrupt. Is it the fullness too? Is there glory in the fallen? Is there glory in the twisted? Should we be able to see glory in the broken or the corrupt? And I think this is really where the rub is for us. I think this is the hard part of this deal. Because you look at you look at uh, damaged things, you look at stuff like storms. I remember on Tuesday we even talked about this, and I said, you know, Jesus rebuked the storm, so I don't know if the storm's supposed to be here. Um, so I don't know that I have a perfect answer for this question, but I do have something we can look at uh, that is going to stimulate some conversation, I hope. So, the, But I think that this two things, I think based on what I presented from the Word, knowing you guys, I think most of you would concede, okay, we should be looking for God's glory in everything in the world. People, things, okay? But what about the corrupt systems? What about the failures of people or governments? What about the networks of criminals or abusers? How do we see those? How do we look at those? Well, it's a difficult challenge, and it's, it's a tough question, but... I think I've got a couple possibilities. I want to review a scripture that we looked at last week. Remember, this is about uh, can people themselves be our hope and be glory? And Paul says this to the Thessalonians. He was in prison at the time. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. That's what he's talking about. For who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation. 
Is it not even you, speaking to the Thessalonians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Now was Paul putting on the Thessalonians the responsibility to be his hope and his joy and his glory? And was that a burden? I don't think that's what the point of this is. What he was saying, and he does have a little qualifier in the middle of this, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Remember in 1 John, when John says, little children, 1 John chapter 3, little children, it it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when uh, he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, was every one of these Thessalonians a righteous, fully mature believer beyond all of their peers? And that's what qualified them to be Paul's hope and joy? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's the pressure he was putting on them. He said, it's you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Now, I don't know what to do with the future tense or sense of at his coming, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to be on Janet's side in the analysis of this thing because it's not hard to be in the presence of Jesus if you know he lives inside you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of the aspects is that the hope of me being somebody's glory, you being somebody's glory, is fulfillable not as a a matter of religious excellence or ego, but because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the presence of Jesus made for us by that power. Does that make sense? We can see Christ in us and in others. And, you know, as we're learning to to shift our thinking, and I do think this is a shift of thinking for a lot of us, as we're learning to do that, I don't want to distract you from going for the, the, the whole enchilada, but if you have a hard time seeing and thinking about seeing the glory in politicians that you despise, or in terrorists, or in child molesters, or sex traffickers, well, just put that on the shelf for a second. There's plenty of people that aren't that. There's plenty of friends in church. There's plenty of believers that you know and you fellowship with. Let's start looking for glory in them because sometimes we make a change in our thinking so complex and so hard when if we would just start looking at one another and perceiving Christ's presence in us, Tune our eyes. Have the Holy Spirit show us how to see glory in you and in me and in others. And then take a step up to some Christian brothers who think that your theology is screwy and judge you for it. (laughs) Well, you could either respond by thinking there's a screwy and judging them for it, which is what all of us have probably done a little bit from time to time. Or you could say, well, you know what? We have Jesus in common, so I'm going to look for glory in, in that. Does that make sense? We can do this. We can do this. We can be transformed. And here's why I am so confident in it. One, I think it's what the Holy Spirit's doing on the earth. It's trying to open our eyes. Remember what the prophecy of Habakkuk is? 
the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Well, it's got to start somewhere. And it isn't something that's going to be visited. You know, I used to think that that verse said that the, the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And I was expecting some big outpouring of rain or something that was going to simulate or spiritually emulate the idea of the, everything being covered. But I don't think it's that way. It's the knowledge. It's going to happen in our heart and our head. It's going to happen between here. So if I can begin to see and condition myself and, and ask the Holy Spirit, help me see the glory in Jason. Help me see it in Beth. He'll do it. And then help me see it in the brothers who think I, my uh, eschatology screwed up and are, and are vocal about it. You can do that. Is there glory in there? Of course there is. Is Christ in their lives? Of course. We're still talking believers, right? Uh, Emily, how about the believers that falsely judge our choices? Yeah. We can learn to do this. And then, lo and behold, I think what will happen is we'll be surprised someday when somebody who we just only know and think of as a beast, the Lord opens up something amazing. We had a little story that uh, Jay told us about John Dawson, uh, the founder of YWAM. And I'm not going to go into a great a lot of detail about it, but it was a very encouraging story to me. Uh, that was at Tuesday's Bible study. Apparently, John Dawson uh, became acquainted with and befriended a man in Hawaii that owned a, a pornography shop. Now, that's not... That's not a vocation that you look for a lot of glory in. But somehow or another, in the dialogue between John and this man and John and the Lord, the Lord revealed that he had placed a call in this man to be a pastor. And that what he provided by selling pornography was a false manifestation of the comfort and the relational comfort. And uh, so, again, I'm not going to try to justify it. I'm not going to try to explain it all. But there's no question that, uh, you know, people that are addicted to pornography are using it for a false kind of relationship that they don't have in real life. So he said that, that uh, he began to, to pray and meditate on that and began to confront the guy lovingly as a friend with... He says, this is, this is who God has made you to be. And it's what's causing this to work, but there's a better way. And lo and behold, the guy ended up hearing it. His spirit bore witness. He gave up the business, got out of that, born again, of course, and became a pastor. So I thought, wow, okay. you know. Now, do we have to start there? I don't think so. It'd be good just to look at your neighbor and say, Lord, show me the glory. Show me the glory. It'd also be good, this is not so threatening, uh, we complain about the weather. What if we just say, Lord, help me see glory and what it's going to be like tomorrow morning when I get up? Might be foggy. Might be sunny. Wind might be blowing 100 miles an hour where we live. Or it might be calm. 
You know, we're accustomed to assigning a little bit of glory to things like a, a beautiful dark night where you can see the Milky Way. Or, wow, I don't know if you guys think it's glorious when there's a lunar eclipse. I, I, I think it's glorious when there's a solar eclipse, but they happen so infrequently. I've only seen like one full one in my life. But the lunar eclipse happens all the time. I always, I always realize I'm standing on a big ball, and there's a big ball up there, you know? It's super cool. So to me, that's easy to see glory, and I've got a telescope, so... I can see that and galaxies and various things that I can see, star clusters. But, what, you know, so we'll look at that in a sunset. We'll look at it in those kind of things. But what about just a, just a foggy evening? Or what about just a wind racing across? I know Vicky's been able to catch the sense of angelic presence in the wind. And it changed how she felt about the wind blowing the curtains off our back door, you know, when we opened it up. So what I'm saying is, if we come to the conclusion objectively in our mind and believe in our heart that the fullness of the earth is the glory of the Lord, think of all the opportunity to learn to see it that life presents us. Presents in our kids and one another and our spouse and our friends at church and our people who aren't our friends but are still in church and outside the sunsets, the darkness, the mud on the ground, all this kind of stuff. We can learn to see glory. Now, to reinforce that this is possible. Oh, hey, hey, yeah, Jeremy. Sorry, I didn't see you, bud. Hey, thistles in with the wheat, and, and there's the eagerness to get rid of the thistles, and reminded me of some of the little fields I have around my place here that are primarily for the wildlife. And I've got this one weed called water hemp that's in there, and you can't really kill it with herbicides, and, but the, the soybeans are in there and they're growing. And so I recognize that I would do more harm to the soybeans by trying to go in and do something to the water him. So I just leave it. And as you're talking, it, it just reminded me about how amazed I am at people, uh, a lot of people in this room, your room, by the way, uh, and others who, who don't find the need to jump when they see a circumstance around them into some sort of activation or we got to do something uh, there's not a panic and there's not a, there's not even a fear. And, uh, granted, I don't know that I have mastered this myself, but, uh, uh, it is amazing when I see that. And so as you're talking about, uh, this topic tonight, um, and I recognize the fullness of the Lord is all around us and Ronnie's questions, uh, you know, provoked me to even think about it within the last 20 minutes or so that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of other stuff around us, but the fullness of the Lord is all around us. And, uh, and so yeah, that's my two cents. Of course, that you said is, I haven't mastered it yet. Well, of course not. Remember the Gnomai word, become, it's a process. It's a process. We're in the process. So seeing it the way you see it and, and recognizing the wisdom and the, and yeah, the wisdom of, of letting your field be that way. You know, the next time the wisdom may be get in and snip them off or something along those lines. Yes, Ronnie. Good job, thank you. So there was a while ago when I was digging in dirt, dirt in the ground, and I remember telling Larry and Vicky that I thought dirt was amazing now, whereas before it was just dirt. Um, because, for example, the dirt was solid. I was building a wall. The dirt was hard to move. It was supporting, 
Yet, if I broke it up, it then became really flexible, meaning I could move it around easily. But if it was all stuck together, it was solid. My big deal. Right? But God was showing me the amazing thing of dirt. So, what I'm sensing from this right here is if I didn't work with the dirt, I probably wouldn't have seen the Brilliant. glory yeah. of dirt. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you can stand on dirt, but if it's in smaller pieces, it's hard to stand on because it dissolves. Isn't that amazing? Or it grows things. You put seeds in it, and then cucumbers come out of that. So that interaction with the thing helped me see a different level of the thing. In this case, the glory of dirt. Appreciate so. Somehow that might work. No, in I think it does. I, I really think that's, that's brilliant. Uh, we've probably made too big a deal of keeping ourselves separated from the world. Now, I know the scripture says, you know, come out and all this kind of stuff and uh, be, uh, you know, not of the world and all this kind of stuff. So, but all I'm suggesting is that might take a little bit of a rethink now. You know, are we, are we overemphasizing the separation? from this. Like the story with John Dawson and that man, if he hadn't made the acquaintance of the guy, he probably wouldn't have had the privilege of hearing from the Lord and then speaking into his life in a transformative way. And it was interesting because what the guy responded to, if, if I got the story correct, what the guy responded to was something the Lord had already called. And fullness is the fulfillment of something that's already there. It's something already there. It's the promise. It's the call. It's that type of thing. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about being afraid of getting cooties from the world. Now, there's certainly, I don't think that, that Dawson's way of warming up to this guy was to uh, buy several subscriptions to a pornography magazine. That would be the wrong way to do it. But the right way would be to keep looking and keep talking and get in, in there, in it, so you can begin to see, I think. I think in Jeremy, same situation, you know, knowing what's going on out there, making that assessment, going and taking a look at it and probably following up and seeing if it keeps the deer from coming and eating the soybean. Because if it doesn't, maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe it doesn't need to be managed right away. And I, I appreciate your position, Jeremy, that we can afford to be a people who don't have to try to police everything around us. Because we're not very good at it. We don't really understand why people behave the way they do. And we're called not to judge. We are called to love. And maybe if we tried that, we'd get a little bit better at it. Uh, one of the other reasons I think perhaps we don't do this very well is we don't want to be, we don't want it to be implied that we're endorsing bad behavior. But what if it's just something that's come to pass? What if it's able to be gotten away with? So anyway, I think this is why I'm kind of excited about this whole concept of the fullness of the Lord and the fullness in people and Christ in us, the hope of glory, is, is something that's more relevant to us regarding glory than waiting for some light to fall out of the sky. Maybe that light's already come in the person of Jesus. And he brought his creator's relationship with us. And his life became the light of men and enlightened the heart of every man coming into the world. we still got a lot to learn, but I think we're on the right way. All right, so anyway, here's uh, a, a, one of my favorites.
characters in the Bible, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it has to do, uh, has to do with Daniel. And so let me get over here. And I didn't put all this up because it would have been impossible. So let me read this to you. So this is about Daniel. You guys know the story. Uh, so this is in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name uh, was Belshazzar, was uh, appalled for a, while, for a while at his thoughts alarmed him. This was because Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream about a tree and it being big and growing. Then it got cut down and there was a band put around it and uh, the rain fell on all this kind of stuff. And the king, who is Nebuchadnezzar, responded and said, Belshazzar, or Daniel, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar replied, now keep in mind, this is a brutal, dictatorial, pagan king. Daniel was a Jew who was in captivity, taken from his family, from his city, from his nation, and from his home. This is the kind of attitude we can have even if we don't like our government. That's a freebie. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible in all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong. And your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave this stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched, and let, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High, his ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes." And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots in the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sin by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. So keep in mind the context of this. Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, brutal, a dictator, powerful beyond scope. He's the one member that built the image of him and then threw these guys in the furnace. Uh, Shattered Meshach and Abednego. All right. Here's what happened. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, 
Sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Judgment. I fear if we don't understand that there can be glory even in the unlikely, even in the abominable, that we would stop the scripture there and go, oh goody. And we would see it as a fulfillment that judgment had come to this evil ruler. But Scripture doesn't stop there. Neither did the prophetic word. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from all generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I think that's about as far as I can go. No, no, there's a couple up there, but I'm going to keep reading. At this time, my reason returned to me, Now listen to this. And my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now let me ask you, does that rock or what? Is that glory? You know, we've got that passage, God doesn't share his glory with another. In this instance, it says he gave him the glory of his kingdom back. Even in a more exceeding way. Fullness. Was a pagan dictator brutal, egotistical? Was there glory in there? Yeah, there was. Isn't it sweet that Daniel was able to say, O king, if this were for somebody else but you, to be able to love even in that environment, to be able to see. But more important than Daniel's response is God's response. God brought this guy back. People have always ask, you know, does anybody ask you, uh, besides Jesus, who do you want to talk to you when you get to heaven? For probably the last 30 years, I've said Nebuchadnezzar. I just think I, if, if, if I can have a conversation with a guy, I just want to go, what an amazing journey. What an amazing turnaround. Now I understand that Nebuchadnezzar represents some of the people that I think it's impossible to find glory in. And I'm going to mention the unmentionable name, you know. If God could redeem Hitler 
like this, would you begrudge him space next door to you in heaven? Or how about uh, one of our political friends in Washington that we aren't impressed with? Do you see how little it would take for repentance? That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? He didn't say, oh, I'm wicked, I'm wicked. He changed his thoughts. God, you're the one that's on high. You control the world. That's repentance. That's changing your mind. It went from being, I built all this because I'm, you know, the cat's meow. To Lord, you're the one in control. If God can do this with Nebuchadnezzar, can we give him the possibility of manifesting glory in the fullness of the earth and the people on it? I believe God wants us to be able to. It doesn't mean we have to excuse him. It doesn't mean we have to make excuses for their bad behavior. Thank God it doesn't mean we have to make excuses for our bad behavior. We just need to change our thinking. We need to keep our eyes on on the Lord. We need to look. For the glory of my kingdom, not just God's. Okay, now, last one. Revelation 21, 9-11. It's a story about the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. I want to go ahead and pump up to the highlighted parts. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So I don't think any of us here would think, oh, that's odd thinking that the, a city coming down from heaven with God in it is going to be glorious. But I want you to look at something. We go on, we jump down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Did you ever see that? We've all read it. All of you have read this passage. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does that mean? Does it only mean they'll bring their righteous Christian behavior into it? No. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was restored to him in glory as he gave honor to God. The kingdoms of this world, the scripture says, at uh, I think it's in Corinthians, toward the end of 1 Corinthians, will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. There is a transformative work going on because of the presence of Jesus in us as the hope of glory throughout the world. The hope of glory. And the glory is going to happen. And it's going to be manifest. And in this ultimate ending of the age, the nations are going to bring their unique and beautiful glory. Is it going to be their culture? Is it going to be their dance, their music, their clothing, their delicacies, their food? I don't know what it's going to be. Is it going to be elements of character? Yes. Do you see, though, how this gives us a future incentive to believe that we can find 
glory in the fullness of the world and those that dwell therein. The knowledge of that glory is going to be covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. And they will bring their glory in it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I had a friend a few days ago tell me, there's no glory in man. Hey, I'm going to have to go with Jesus on that one. I understand why you say it, but he says there is. He is the hope of glory in us. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I don't have time to try to, or the smarts to try to teach on that last verse. But what I want you to see is that the call that is issued in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, that we uh, recognize that the, the, the fullness of the earth and the people that dwell in it are the glory of the Lord, in fact, is going to be realized when the new Jerusalem has its gates wide open. The sun never needs to shine on it because God Himself and the Lamb are the Lamb. And the nations are going to be bringing the fullness, their fullness to it, and it's going to be glory. Does that make sense? So the last thing I want to give you, and I didn't have it up there, is I want to just review the passage in Romans. Romans chapter 15. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And that's what I want to just say to you now as a benediction. May the God of hope fill each of you with all joy and peace in believing this so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a duty. It's a gift. Amen? Okay.